As we consider the prophets, we've looked at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, now Daniel, considered major prophets in the scriptures, major not because they were more important than the other ones, but simply because there's more writing that they've done than the other prophets. And so that might be important for us to recognize. It's not like Major League and Minor League Baseball or anything. And what we see in, uh, in the prophet Daniel is not unlike the other prophets that we've encountered as we look at the progress of redemption through the scriptures. And that is that, that they really do stand as types of the Lord Jesus. As we look at these men, as we look at the interaction, the communion that they had with, with God, we see that also they endured great suffering. They were set up as living illustrations of not only what was happening to the nation of Jerusalem, or of, of Israel, often in Jerusalem, but also as a representation of God's people, ultimately associated with uh, the true Israel, those true sons and daughters of Abraham, those who come to the Lord Jesus by faith. We see that uh, they were to us and should be to us representations of how to not only suffer well in the Lord Jesus Christ and It's not something that we welcome. However, a good bit of our lives uh, involve a a faithful enduring of hardship, but we also see what the Apostle Paul captured in Philippians, this idea that it is only through this entering into faithfully the challenges of our day that we can enjoy the deepest communion with the Lord Jesus. And so I would draw your attention to that as well as a number of things as we consider the book of Daniel today. And as we begin, I'd like to illustrate by a recent article in Voice of the Martyrs magazine. It's a monthly magazine that uh, likely could come free to your home were you to desire that. We appreciate the work of the Voice of the Martyrs. And in uh, this most recent magazine, there was a story about a young man named uh, Dylan Kim. And Dylan Kim's father... Kim Jong-wook divided his time between South Korea and China to proclaim the gospel to North Koreans. Dylan assisted his father since the year 2008, and in 2012, his father indicated that he wanted to go into North Korea and was arrested one month later, sentenced to a life in a labor camp uh, after being convicted of spying and starting underground churches. Now, so Dylan, of course, saw his father's commitment to proclaiming the gospel to those in absolute torturous situations and ultimately went there himself. And the thing that I thought was particularly noteworthy was the two things that Dylan was praying and continues to pray for his father. The first is that God would bring him back to his family. Perhaps not surprising that he would pray that. The second thing that he prayed was, as he expected his father to be tortured, he prayed that his father would not lose his faith. That he would be faithful to the end. And so I think it's an appropriate question for us to ask ourselves, are we so concerned about losing our faith? Now, the point that Dylan was making uh, was absolutely not this idea or the proposition that somehow his father 
would lose his salvation because he succumbed to the torture and hardship of a North Korean labor camp. That wasn't what he was getting at. The point wasn't that Dylan uh, was somehow concerned that his father wouldn't be in heaven. But he was concerned that his father would remain faithful to Christ in all of the difficulty that he would endure. That the time, the horrible pressures and torture of being in a North Korean labor and death camp would draw his daily devotion and communion with Christ away and leave him embittered, angry, solitary, allowing the fruits of his saving faith to be overcome by the breathtaking hardships he would endure. Such that he would no longer act like the kindly devoted disciple of Christ who longs for others to be rescued from their sins in a Christless eternity. We should understand that true believers sometimes lack the fortitude, the depth of faith, the resiliency, and trust to stand in some very difficult and dangerous situations. For instance, Abraham lied about his wife Sarah to save his own life. David feigned insanity before Achish, the king of Gath, because he was afraid. Jonah was committed primarily to his own comfort, with some short stages of courageous gospel proclamation. These men weren't thrown out of God's saving covenant because they stammered and gave in to fear or sin or selfishness. But they did bring reproach to the name of God. They set back their own spiritual walk and they caused others to stumble as well. A few examples, for instance, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom some of you have read about, went courageously to his death, retaining his reputation as a tireless, loving pastor. Betsy and Corey Tin Boom, truthful when others would lie, even regarding hiding the Jews, encouraged others, as did Ernest Gordon, not to give in to bitterness and hatred when right in the midst of being tortured and starved. And lastly, of course, and most notably, when our Lord was faithful at every point, through humiliation, suffering, mockery, lack of faith and understanding in those He was closest to, Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, conversed with the Father about every event in His life. He received strength for His humanity, spiritual nourishment, endurance, and was able to testify, It is finished. His task in purchasing redemption for all God determined to save in a manner that reflected the faithfulness at every point and the glory to God. Now, one of the important aspects of the book of Daniel and of the story of Daniel is simply this resolution that he had to be faithful. A resolution to be faithful. Now, Likely, we in our lifetimes are not going to encounter the possibility of a shockingly capricious leader that threatens and will throw us into a fiery furnace or into a den of lions. But we have trouble being faithful in the midst of a lack of food or a financial reversal or a frustrating chronic illness. Or a hard day at work. We're okay 
with angry, harsh words in that situation. But that would be to associate with Dylan Kim's idea to lose our faith. We're not, we haven't lost our salvation, but we're not representing well the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we're robbing ourselves of the communion that Christ intended in the hardship. And also we're bringing reproach to the name that we claim to be ours, the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's the idea. What are some situations in which we may battle this unbelief and cave into faithless living? Because again, that's what it is. It's unbelief. It's this idea that I deserve to be an angry man because I've had a hard day. Right? That's unbelief. That's rejecting this idea. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, it wasn't with a grimace. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross as one who was quietly in control of himself in the entire situation. In our daily difficulties that the Apostle Paul referred to as light momentary afflictions should certainly incline us to enter into them in a way that's faithful, with resolve, and with a cheerful countenance. And only in that way will we enjoy the depth of communion that the Lord Jesus sets before us. Now, I am not speaking to you today as a man who has finally managed to do this perfectly. Be sure you know that. But Daniel does set before us this example. Some situations in which we may battle this unbelief, for instance, giving in to life's stressors and lashing out in anger to those around you. This is a spiritual issue that may certainly involve a seeming lack of resources, job loss, financial reversal, health reversal, disappointment. Being overcome by cultural idolatry. And what I mean by that is worship of self, being swept into the overwhelming consumerism of the day, focusing on the bargain, the score at the store, buying it, seeing, buying it, wearing it, making it, eating it. The point is to live life in a self-absorbed, narcissistic way is to live as an unbeliever. It won't end well. And you will rob yourself and those around you of the sweet communion of Christ. My last example, viewing our salvation as merely transactional and as merely our justification in Christ and not as an ongoing journey to sanctification which involves coming to know Christ more and more, growing in love and devotion to Him, laying aside things extraneous to knowing Christ and enjoying Him in the context of our vocations and place and then bearing the fruit of this growing relationship with our Savior Transforming grace to those around us. In our culture today, one of the things that strikes us as believers in Christ when we encounter others who profess faith is they often view the experience of a life walk with the Lord as something that can be described more as a transaction than a relationship. You may ask them about their faith and they may say something like, oh, I already did that. 
You already did what? Like, it's like there was some sort of exchange at the counter of a store. Yes, I mean, our justifying righteousness by the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit was, as the Catechism rightly says, an act of God's free grace. It was a transaction, but we don't live our lives in that situation. We live our lives in a growing relationship with our loving Savior. And the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Lord Jesus. Do we desire relationship with our Creator? Are we not a people who can at least testify that there are some sweet relationships in our own lives? Yes, they're imperfect. But nonetheless, we would testify that God has, God has given to us some of the things that we're most thankful for are those relationships. And we refer to our God as a personal God exactly for this idea that we would understand that knowing God is something that will and can in fact grow, something that we can enjoy more and more each day. And this will come about, of course, as a, we enter into the resolve, as Daniel did, to be faithful. Suffering is the sure path to communion. I, before I, we look here at Daniel, I'd like to draw your attention to the Apostle Paul's, uh, if you will, definitive word on the subject of communion and suffering, and that's in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Here's the Apostle Paul. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, it would be a poor student of Scripture to take from this passage that what Paul is saying is that it doesn't matter what I do. And that the past is nothing to me. The Apostle Paul is absolutely not saying that. He majors on faithful resolve, as did the prophet Daniel. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the highlight of his life is communing with his majestic Lord Jesus Christ and that he has come to understand that as he enters in faithfully to the sufferings of Christ, in this way he enters into a deeper communion with the Lord Jesus. Now, God could have designed this in another way. God could have designed our faith to grow 
in comfort. He could have designed our faith to grow in shallowness, in walking away from the difficulties of life, in the angry stomping off and telling people off and so forth and so on, meditating and becoming not gracious but bitter. He could have done that. But he's decided that the means by which we would enter into a deeper communion with our Lord and Savior is not merely to endure hardship with a grimace on our face, but to cheerfully power through receiving the power of Christ and then seeing that, look here, look what's happening. I can, in fact, be like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer and be known for even on the day of my death as I walk to the gallows of being a faithful, warm pastor who has a reputation for loving others in the midst of what he absolutely knew would be his death. The Lord Jesus, of course, went far beyond that. So the first point here is simply that Daniel resolves to be faithful. Let's, let's look at this book of Daniel. The first point, Daniel resolves to be faithful. And so I'd like to draw your attention to a few passages as we really build, if you will, an understanding of, David, of Daniel's resolve here to be faithful. And I'd like to look at chapter 1, verse 8, for instance. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. I'd like to draw your attention to chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That is, regarding bowing down to the golden image. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I draw your attention to chapter 4, verse 27. As Daniel interprets another dream, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And then in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but have lifted up, against, lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and who, whose are all your ways, you have not honored. This first point is simply this idea that resolve to be faithful involves risk. It involves risk. 
resolve. Daniel's resolve to be faithful involves risk. Think about his first interaction with the chief eunuch regarding his own food. So here's the eunuch, and where did this food come from? It came from the king's table. And then Dave, uh, excuse me, Daniel said, "Sir, I would defile myself if I ate the food from the king's table." Now, how would you feel if you spread before me a wonderful Christmas meal and I said, I would defile myself if I ate this food. And you would receive that warmly, I'm sure, and offer me oatmeal or something. I'm not sure, right? And so we see this risk that Daniel takes here right off the bat, and likely it's reasonable that we would take Daniel to be one who was dripping with sincerity and hope in this situation, because what was the result of it? Well, it wasn't unlike the Apostle Paul on that ship that was about to be wrecked. When he started out as a prisoner to be killed, and he ended up with the captain and the centurion and the owner of the ship all sort of eating out of his hand, as it were. Because we see that we see that he understood the truth of the situation and yet approached it with grace and fervency. And this, no doubt, is what Daniel was doing, though it involved a great risk. Here he is. Here's, here's Daniel looking at Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he say in 427? He's only the king of the most powerful nation on earth. And he says, as I read already, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. <laughs> what, did, what do you think Nebuchadnezzar said about that? So here's a man, Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks nothing of casting people into a fiery furnace. When things don't go so well for him, he he declares things like, rip him from limb to limb. Something that apparently was pretty normal in the life of a week of Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And here's Daniel saying, break off your sins, that it may go well with you. So, again, our own faithfulness involves risk. Now, again, we may say, well, I'm not dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, praise God, you're not. But do we not make excuses for our own challenges and difficulties? We say, well, if I was in this situation, I would act differently. Well, here's one of a far less degree, and you sort of think it's okay, and you've sort of passed the test, if you will. If you get flaming angry and then repent of it later. No. In that case, you lost your faith, as Dylan Kim was referring to. No, you're going to heaven if you're redeemed, but nonetheless, you've blasted and refused, frankly, to grow in communion with a loving Savior in that. It's instructive to see here as Daniel resolves to be faithful that in chapters 1 and 3 the risk was taken in order that Daniel and his friends would be faithful to God. 
maintaining close relationship with Him and enjoying their true knowledge of God's unwavering faithfulness. In chapters 4 and 5, the risk was directly related to urging others to faithfulness and true knowledge of God and His judgment. Now, another idea here that we see in Daniel's resolve to be faithful is noted here in chapter 1, verse 10. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Now, this is another important point. Our resolve at faithfulness may involve risk for others. I have heard men tell me that they can't enter into a certain risk because of their families. Now, I don't want to run roughshod over this, folks, but faithfulness is faithfulness. And if we can't entrust a loving, omnipotent, all-powerful God to our families in an act, again, of faithfulness to God then we are not being faithful to God. The risk of the resolution of faithfulness may involve risk for others. It's not that we do that mindlessly. Chapter 1, verse 12 Test your servants, so says Daniel, for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. A third aspect here of Daniel's resolve to be faithful is that resolving to be faithful is reason to be confident in God's faithfulness to us. Resolve to be faithful should incline us to confidence in God's faithfulness to us. What did Daniel say? Well, Daniel knew what was right. He was committed to what was right. He persuaded the eunuch that he needed to do what was right and that all would be well. And then he goes so far as to understand a great confidence in that God would be faithful as Daniel is faithful. Do you question God's faithfulness when you resolve to be faithful? You might be hung up on success. Does faithfulness always look like worldly success? Well, I was faithful and it didn't work out. It didn't work out well. Where? On earth or in heaven? It didn't work out well for the destination of your soul, the true citizenship of who you are, or people didn't like it so much around you. People who reject God. Resolving to be faithful is reason to be confident in God's faithfulness to us. The reality is is that we may be more ready to fight than to have resolved not to be bitter in hardship. Communion in a common enemy is much easier than communion in Christ-like humble resolve. Here's my point. For some of us, it's easier to be angry and have a common enemy in a capricious authoritarian ruler, which is exactly what Daniel had. 
Nebuchadnezzar and the rulers of Babylon had absolute authority. Nothing was out of their reach or beyond what they could do. Absolutely nothing. But what we see is part of Daniel's resolve and part of our resolve is this recognition that, that success, the only version of success for being faithful is to do this in such a way as not to cave in to bitterness and hatred. The point isn't about being nice. The point is, you've got to do what you've got to do. Daniel couldn't eat that food. Daniel had to resolve to tell Nebuchadnezzar because he was interpreting a dream that God had helped for him to understand. He had to tell him the truth. He had to enter into this. But he did it in such a way, again, as to be faithful. Not only in what he said, but how he said it. Another point is the context of our faithfulness, as I said, may involve authorities and others who are capricious, wicked, and self-absorbed. Look at 2.5. Regarding this first dream that Daniel was to interpret, before the dream was interpreted, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. That's not exactly a week without pay. So let's make sure we understand what Nebuchadnezzar was saying to his wise men, of whom Daniel was one, as well as his friends. He was saying this, I had a dream, and I'm persuaded it was very important. And I need you to interpret, interpret it properly for me, but there's something else that you need to know. Is when you interpret the dream, you have to tell me what the dream was. And then you've got to interpret the dream. And the wise men, as well as Daniel, said something that was absolutely true. They said this, Nobody can do that. (laughs) Nobody, no man can do that. Daniel said, yep, that's right, no man can do that. But God can. God can. And Daniel entrusted himself to God. We look at 2.12, for instance. Because of this, the king was angry, furious, commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Just like that. Three six. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 3.15. Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What's old Nebuchadnezzar doing there? Well, he's just mocking God, right? Who can deliver you out of my hands? Plainly declaring... I am more powerful than your puny God. Daniel knows something that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. 
And next we see that Daniel's confidence in God drew him to make an appointment with the king before he even knew the dream and its interpretation, 2.16. So this first dream that he interpreted, the captain of the king's guard was coming in to kill Daniel. And in, uh, in 2.15 he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So what did Daniel do? He did this. He came immediately to understand what the issue was. Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream. He doesn't remember it. He wants it interpreted. No problem. So Arioch comes in. He tells Daniel all this. He says, all you guys are going to die because nobody's told the king the dream. And Daniel says... Could you make an appointment with the king for me to come tell him his dream? Could you do that for me? But Daniel didn't know the dream. He hadn't prayed about it yet. He didn't know the interpretation. He didn't know any of that, right? But what does he do? You ever taken a step of faith? (laughs) Daniel shows us what it is to take a step of faith. Go ahead and make an appointment. And then what does he do? Well, verse 17, chapter 2, Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, told them to seek the mercy mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. You say, yeah, Daniel was able to be faithful. Great. What about Nebuchadnezzar? So if Daniel just sort of went along, got along, just said, hey, you know, well, we'll be faithful next time when it gets really hard. We're, we're going we're gonna to knuckle under on this time, but when it gets really hard, then we're going to be faithful. Did Daniel do that? No, he didn't. And if he had, the outcome would have been different, because what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, I'll draw your attention to chapter 4, verse 37. After Nebuchadnezzar's been turned into a beast, eating grass like a cow for seven periods of time. Verse 37 of chapter 4, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What? (laughs) What just happened? Whoa! Daniel's resolve was used to break the flint-like resolve of Nebuchadnezzar into powder. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? The God of heaven, Daniel's God. All his ways are right. Now let's look secondly at complete transition of subject here, and that's Daniel's prayer. It's Daniel's prayer. 
Daniel had a reputation for being faithful in prayer. On the occasion of Daniel in the lion's den, Darius was set over the kingdom. This was after Babylon was conquered by the, by the Medes. And he was one of three presidents that were set over the kingdom right under the king. And they knew Daniel. They knew Daniel's habits and his patterns. They knew who he was. They knew what he did. They were madly jealous over his success. And they also knew something else about Daniel. And that's referred to right here in chapter 6. In verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, that is, this document that these guys had conjured up so that Daniel would be killed... And it had to do with this idea that no one could ask or make a petition to anybody except the king. In chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And that's the end of the verse. No, wait a minute, there's something else. As he had done previously. So let's make sure we understand this, okay? Daniel had a reputation for praying three times a day. Now, Daniel was no showman, that's not the point here. But people who knew Daniel knew that he prayed three times a day with his windows open. And Daniel heard the decree, right? He knew it. And what did he do? He carried on. Daniel had a habit of faithfully praying to the Lord. What could Daniel have done? He could have shut his window. He didn't do that. Daniel resolved to quietly, cheerfully be faithful. That's what he did. And what happened? Well, it seems that Darius was a bit in the bind. The ways and means of the laws of the Medes and Persians remain an issue of much mystery to most of us, including me. And Darius seemed to be a bit sorry that this was the case, but nonetheless was pretty happy that Daniel didn't get eaten up by the lions. But let's look at Daniel's prayer. Now, as we see Daniel's resolve for faithfulness, we see that Daniel was a man of God, a man used mightily of the Lord. And you might think as Daniel prayed to the Lord that it would be something like this, Oh God, these people that you've placed around me are absolutely wicked. They're horrible. It's very hard to be faithful in their midst. Please do something about them. But that's not... Daniel's prayer didn't go like that, actually. 
Daniel continues to resolve to be faithful, even in this. And we see, let's look at his prayer. It begins with an adjuration of God in chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We could look at the same thing in 7 as well as 9. He says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Again, what is Daniel doing but showing for us, modeling for us, that as we pray, certainly an element of our prayer is adoration. O God, you're mighty and majestic. With you is mercy and forgiveness. Now, Daniel... Is he some kind of guy with all kinds of time on his hands? Is nobody running for him? Nobody gunning for him? Daniel just enjoys sort of this life of ease in Babylon? No! Every moment, harried, driven, enduring the demands of the king. But here's Daniel, rightly reflecting the grace and mercy of God in his adoration. Secondly, we see his confession of sin. Chapter 9, verse 5, he says, They have sinned! Oh, is that what it says? Oh, wait a minute. Different pronoun here. We have sinned. First person. Plural. For you grammar students out there. We have sinned. Not third person, right? We have sinned, that's what he says, and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We can go on. We've not listened to you, your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, and to us open shame. Verse 8, we've sinned against you. Verse 9, we've rebelled against you. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. On and on. The confession. Certainly, Daniel is for us also modeling another aspect of a faithful prayer. Not only is there adoration, but there is confession. When you ever get to a point where you can pray and not confess to the Lord anything, come see me. Come see me. You're in a dangerous place. But God is merciful and gracious and kindly. And so it it behooves us to be a people who humbly confess our sin. Not in general. Oh God, forgive me for all the bad stuff I did yesterday. No? If anybody understands sin is a process, it's God. God, please forgive me not only for this specific sin, but for the habit of this sin, so that I can transition not only this sin, but the habit that created it. Nine sixteen, we see also the supplication portion of his prayer. O Lord, chapter 9, verse 16, According to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away 
from your holy, excuse me, from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your ears and see our desolations. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own name's sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Yes, Daniel adores God. He confesses to God. But yes, Daniel has a list. Oh God, please have mercy. Have mercy on your people. Have mercy on your land. Now I want to tell you, Daniel's the kind of guy that I want to give him my prayer list. And here's why. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel... I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the, beginning, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So what was Gabriel doing before he came to talk to Daniel after his prayer? Was he waiting to be rung up by the Heavenly Father in the lounge for angels? No. He was fighting spiritual battles and was pulled away from that, that he might bring to Daniel this one greatly loved by God, and bring his answer to prayer. Now, I'm not proposing to you that uh, your own faithfulness will result in Gabriel coming to you, being torn away from his daily battles. But I am proposing this to you. is that Daniel's life was a process, not unlike our own lives. And we see in that process that Daniel had a significant resolve to faithfulness. And that in his significant resolve to faithfulness and developing through faithfully entering into suffering, he also did for himself that which is possible for us, and that is growing in his communion and relationship with God. What did the angel say about Daniel? 
Verse 23 says, you are greatly loved. I'm not persuaded that as the Puritans would say, that was the love of benevolence. That is this sort of standard love that God has for His redeemed. But it is, as some of them would say, that was the love of complacency. In other words, it was the love kind of like the way the Apostle John is referred to by the Lord Jesus Christ. How was John referred to by Christ? The one whom Jesus loved? Do you feel a little bit awkward when Peter and James didn't get the same treatment? Do you feel a little odd when Jesus doesn't make a point of saying, yes, all the twelve apostles I loved equally, exactly the same, all the time, always, never to change at all? Now this may be a little bit odd for us, but again, what we see likely is that John intentionally committed himself to being a friend of Christ. And he also enjoyed the fruit of that relationship. Daniel also intentionally entered into a warm relationship with a loving Heavenly Father that included a cheerful, quiet resolve to be faithful. Not angry, but to powerfully go through in union with His Redeemer. Yes, you have a hard task for me today. Yep, got it. Okay, we'll take care of that. Yes, that hurt a little bit. I'll take care of this. Okay, yeah, I missed a meal or two. That's fine, no problem. I'll eat in heaven. Okay, so, so this is the way that Daniel approached life, and this is set up for us as well, right? And this is the way that we enjoy communion, not unlike the way the Apostle Paul spoke in Philippians chapter 3. Exactly the same idea. Daniel's resolve. Daniel's prayer. The fruit of Daniel's relationship revealed to us in Gabriel. Let's pray.